Uh, if we have not met, my name is Brian. I'm one of the pastors here, and I am excited to get into God's Word with you this morning. We are in part two of a series called Cleaning Up the Kingdom through the book of Zechariah, one of the last books in the Old Testament. So if you have a Bible, I want to invite you to go there. If you're using the Bible underneath the seat in front of you, it's going to be on page 793, 793. And if you're not a person who typically has a Bible or Bible-equipped mobile device in front of you uh, during a, a teaching, that's totally fine. I just want to encourage you to maybe consider doing that today, uh, just because with what we're covering, I think you're going to be able to get a lot more out of it if you can sort of see the words uh, in front of you. So, so we're in, like I said, part two of this series. It's an obscure Old Testament book that does not get talked about a whole lot. And we started the series last week by talking about the idea of stories. And we said how that, that great stories involve tension, that involve challenges to overcome, that, that, that involve obstacles to be faced. And I talked to you about, about this idea how in the screenwriting world, there's the concept of the all is lost moment. The, the moment in any great story where the protagonist, where for the protagonist kind of the bottom drops out and things seem hopeless. And it's from that all is lost moment that usually takes place about two thirds of a way through a movie that the protagonist begins to build towards resolution and they begin to seek restoration. And what I said last week was that that doesn't just happen in the movies, that lives have all as lost moments. And that civilizations and societies even have all as lost moments. And I think that's a helpful framework to help us understand kind of where this book falls in Israel's history. See, they had experienced their all is lost moment in 586 BC when the southern kingdom of Judah was conquered and Jerusalem was destroyed and the temple was destroyed and the people were taken away into exile. And last week we talked about how after 70 years of exile, they were brought back into the land. They were able to return to their homeland in accordance with something God had promised them. And it was during this time that they started to rebuild their lives and they started to rebuild the temple. But to make a long story short, they started to run into a whole bunch of difficulty and trouble. And life back in the land was not everything they'd hoped it would be. God had promised his presence. God had promised the temple would be rebuilt. God had promised victory after these years of exile and they simply were not experiencing it. What will the years go by and then finally sort of Israel gets the green light to really begin to rebuild the temple? And it's during that time that this prophet Zechariah starts to write. So what we're seeing in this, in this prophetic book is we're, we're studying Israel's restoration, the beginning of their restoration from their all is lost moment. So as we started to look at the book last week, I just asked the question, as we're looking at Israel's restoration, I asked the question, where do you need restoration in your life? And what can we glean from this book of Zechariah that would help us understand how we can experience restoration in our own lives and in our families and maybe in organizations that we're a part of. And last week, we just looked at the very beginning of this book. And we looked at these first six verses where Zechariah had a very clear message for the people. He said, listen, you need to turn back to God. And if you turn back to God, he will turn back to you. And he said, you need to remember your ancestors. Remember what they did to get them into the predicament that they were in. Don't forget what it is that they did, their disobedience and unfaithfulness, so that you don't fall into the same thing. But then he said also, but also don't forget that they're all gone, but the word of God stands forever. So, so in studying that passage... I said that God is in the business of restoration. I want us to understand that God is in the business of restoration. So we, and based on that passage, what do we need to do if we're going to experience restoration in our own lives? And we talked about how we need to acknowledge the past. That we need to, if we're in that all is lost moment, if we're in a place of brokenness in our lives, that we need to look at the past and say, what is there in the past that led me here? What is there in the past that maybe is even my fault that led me here. And we need to be able to name those things specifically. Because I said that so much dysfunction, so much stuff that follows us around from relationship to relationship, or stuff that follows us around through decades of our lives, or follows us around from job to job, it sticks with us. Why? Because we don't name it. 
And when dysfunction is not named, it keeps its power. But when it is named, it starts to lose its power. I said, we even, we even need to be able to go up our family tree a little bit and say, where is the dysfunction that I have even inherited? And I shared with you this quote that I love from a pastor in New York who says that Jesus might live in your heart, but grandpa lives in your bones. For better or for worse. And we like to pretend that's not true. And since we pretend that's not true, dysfunction gets perpetuate it, right? And then we need to remember that ultimately it is the word of God that stands forever, that our dysfunction does not have to have the final word, that we can be men and women who are breaking cycles of dysfunction in our lives and in our families, and we can have hope that that's really possible. Why? Because Jesus is the ultimate cycle breaker. So that was last week. We said that Jesus is the ultimate cycle breaker, that God is in the business of restoration so that we can be people of hope. And I think this is such a beautiful book for us to study at this time in our church's history, because if you've been with us, we studied so much Old Testament stuff in the first part of the year, and so much Old Testament history, and, and Pastor Lance just led us through this series so, so beautifully, and now after we get through this series, it's going to be all New Testament from here on out, and Zechariah provides a wonderful bridge between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And as we continue today, I told you last week, this is a four-part series through 14 chapters, and we did six verses last week. That means we're going to pick up the pace a little bit today. <laughs> so in the same amount of time, we've got six chapters to go through today. And what we're going to see is, is these six chapters, they take place just a few months following Zechariah's initial vision and their, his initial teaching in those first verses. And what happens in these six chapters is Zechariah goes to sleep, and he has a very interesting night's sleep. And he has eight specific dreams, eight specific prophetic dreams that he writes down, and those make up this book. And then following those eight dreams, there's this final prophetic vision that God gives to Zechariah. So we're going we're gonna to walk through these dreams, and we're going to seek to understand them. We're going to try to bring them into the 21st century a little bit and say, okay, what did these mean for the people then? And then what can this possibly mean for us 2,500 some odd years later and half a world away? Why should we care? I believe there's a lot in there for us. And we're going to draw out some application points along the way. And here's just my encouragement to you. We're covering so much ground in such a short amount of time today. And I'm going to try to bring, it, bring in as many application points as I can. My encouragement to you is this. If you're, if you're a note taker, by all means, take a lot of notes and, and, and write stuff down and try to get kind of the big picture. But I just want to encourage you, maybe focus and even ask God to help you focus. Is there one application point that's for you today? That out of everything I'm going to raise, maybe there's one that's got your name on it. Because I don't know about you, but I don't mean to brag, but I'm an expert at trying to remember 10 things and remembering none of them. Right? Or, I, or, or better yet, being really inspired to do 10 things so I do none of them. Right? And that's not helpful. So I, I just want to encourage you, maybe is there one thing for you as we get going this morning? And here's kind of the big picture idea I, I, I want us to understand, and, and maybe you know this, maybe you need a reminder of it, is that as we study these visions, I want you to see that God's plans for his people are good. In fact, that's the fill-in if you're following along on the app or with the handout you received when you walked in. God's plans for his people are good. God's plans for his people are good, and we're going to see that throughout these visions. Now, last thing before we get into the text is these visions are written in kind of an interesting literary structure that, that is important to understand if we're really going to, going to grasp sort of the significance of some of the parts of these visions. And the structure is called chiasm or a chiastic structure, and it's based off of the letter chi, which is basically an X. It's a Greek letter X, and so you can see sort of half of a letter X here. And this is how a chiastic structure works, which, by the way, you, if you find this interesting, Google chiasm in the Bible and just you can get lost for days. On, this is all over the scriptures. It's pretty interesting. So, so the first is, is that the first vision and the eighth vision are connected, that there is a, there is a commonality between those two visions. And specifically in this case, they, they, these two visions address sort of the nations and, and, and God's watchful eye over the nations. And then the second vision and the seventh vision are connected that they have to do with judgment over sin and judgment over the nations. And then the third vision and the sixth vision are connected because as we get to those, God is addressing things specific to Israel, specific things in Israel. Vision three we're going to see is about Israel being raised up. Vision six is about Israel being purified. 
And then finally, the fourth and the fifth vision have to do with activity in the temple with the high priest Joshua and the governor Zerubbabel and sort of activity going on that relates to temple worship and the spiritual lives of the people. And here's what you got to know about, about a chiastic structure is that in a lot of our sort of Western writing, the important part is at the end, right? Everything is a build up to the, the conclusion, right? Well, in chiasm, the most important part is in the middle. So, so in this case, the main point is going to be visions four and five. And in fact, the very last thing we're going to look at, the prophetic part at the end, relates most closely to those. So that's sort of our structure for what we're going to look at. So with that, We've got eight weird dreams to look at together. We're going to cover a lot of ground. We're going to do it quickly. Buckle up. Here we go. Let's have some fun. Zechariah chapter 1, starting in verse 7. On the 24th day of the 11th month, which is the month of Shabbat, in the second year of Darius, that is 519 BC, in case you were wondering, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, son of Berechiah, son of Edo, saying, I saw in the night, and behold, a man riding on a red horse. He was standing among the myrtle trees in the glen, and behind him were red, sorrel, and white horses. Then I said, What are these, my Lord? The angel who talked with me, who, the angel who talked with me said to me, I will show you what they are. How convenient. Verse 10. So the man who was standing among the myrtle trees answered, These are they whom the Lord has sent to patrol the earth. And they answered the angel of the Lord who was standing among the myrtle trees and says, We have patrolled the earth, and behold, all of the earth remains at rest. So he starts with this vision of four horsemen who are out patrolling the earth. And these are meant to be a symbol of God's watchful eye over the nations. And they come back and the report of these horsemen who have been patrolling the nations is to say that the world is at rest, that there is relative peace. And this was true. At this time in history, Babylon had been conquered by Persia, and Persia had brought relative peace to this part of the world. And that all seems well and good, but there was one little problem. I told you at the start, that the people of Israel were discouraged at this time. And we'll just take a look at verse 12. Then the angel of the Lord said, O Lord of hosts, how long will you have no mercy on Jerusalem and the cities of Judah against which you have been angry these 70 years? They're saying, wait a second, like we see that there's peace out in the nations and that's good, but, but God, when are you going to have mercy on us? See, see, there's peace outside, but there's chaos in here. There's prosperity outside, but there's discouragement in here. God, when are you going to fulfill your promises? God, have you forgotten about us? God, do you even see us? And I just wonder if you've ever been in that place. See, we get discouraged, we get defeated, and we start to say, God, where are you? Are you even paying attention? Do you even see me? Are you even present? And it says this, starting in verse 13. And the Lord answered gracious and comforting words to me, to the, to the angel who talked with me. So the angel who talked with me said to me, cry out, thus says the Lord of hosts, I am exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem and for Zion. In other words, I care about them more than you know. And I am exceedingly angry with the nations that are at ease. For while I was angry but a little, they have furthered the disaster. Therefore, thus says the Lord, I have returned to Jerusalem with mercy. My house shall be built in it, declares the Lord of hosts, and the measuring line shall be stretched out over Jerusalem. Cry out again, thus says the Lord of hosts, my cities shall again overflow with prosperity, and the Lord will again comfort Zion and choose Jerusalem. What's God saying? He's saying, listen, I, don't, don't question that Jerusalem, Zion, my people, you are foremost in my heart. Th that, that I see the wicked nations that are at peace, and, and don't worry, I have not forgotten their wickedness. And don't worry, I'm going to build my home with you. The temple is going to be rebuilt. I will choose Jerusalem, and I, and I am with you. It's as if God is saying to his people, listen, I need you to understand, I've had my eye on you this whole time. I have not forgotten about you. See, I think for some of us, part of experiencing restoration is not so much a change of circumstance as it is a change of perspective. And, and for us to be reminded of God's loving care for us. 
that God has not forgotten about us, that, that, that God sees us, that, that we are a part of, you want to talk about stories, we are a part of God's great story. And, and listen, you might have a role that you did not pick for yourself, but you're a part of something great. And God sees you. And God is with you. He is not distant. He is near. I mean, I think about the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 6, just to, to paraphrase, where he says, like, think about the birds of the sky. They don't do anything. <laughs> and God takes care of them. Right? Or think about the lilies of the field. They, they, don't, they, don't, they don't work. They don't toil. They don't do any of that stuff. And yet God takes care of them. And if God takes care of them who are so seemingly insignificant, how much more does he pay attention to you? See, some of us in our distress, some of us in our discouragement, we need to be reminded, God sees you. God sees you, and he will empower you and strengthen you to play your part in his story well. I love, one of my favorite psalms is Psalm 121, and I, and I love just this, this picture where the psalmist writes about, about the Lord. He says that he who keeps Israel will neither sleep nor slumber. Right? God is not asleep at the wheel in your life. God is keeping a watchful eye on you. I wonder if for some of us, part of our restoration is just being reminded that God is not absent, he is present, that he sees us in our situation. One down, seven to go. Verse 18, and I lifted my eyes and saw and behold four horns. And I said to the angel who talked with me, what are these? By the way, Zechariah is confused this whole time. So just, if you're confused, the author's confused too. So just, there you go. And he said to me, these are four, or these are the horns that have scattered Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. Then the Lord showed me four craftsmen. And I said, what are these coming to do? And he said, these are the horns that scattered Judah so that no one raised his head. And these have come to terrify them, to cast down the horns of the nations who lifted up their horns against the land of Judah to scatter it. Now this one's a little ambiguous, but it's pretty simple. So, so in the Old Testament, horns represent Israel's enemies. And there's some debate about what specifically or what civilizations do these horns represent, which, which by the way, throughout all eight of these visions, they're prophetic visions, which means they are notoriously difficult to interpret. I read lots of different interpretations this week, and what I've tried to do is just prayerfully read through them and synthesize them, and I'm presenting to you what I think they mean and what makes sense to me, but I could be wrong. <laughs> so if you're reading this and thinking, I don't know if that interpretation is correct, you may well be right. So let's just get that out there right now. But these four horns almost certainly include Assyria who conquered the northern kingdom and Babylon who conquered the southern kingdom. And then it says four craftsmen come to sort of defeat and, and wipe out the horns. And that almost certainly refers to Persia who had conquered Babylon and Assyria. And the point is of the second vision is simply this. Just the reminder that the bad guys aren't going to win. <laughs> The bad guys aren't going to win. That God's judgment over those who have persisted in disobedience and who have harmed his people is coming. Vision three, two down, six to go. Chapter two. And I lifted my eyes and saw and behold a man with a measuring line in his hand. Then I said, where are you going? And he said to me to measure Jerusalem, to see what is its width and what is its length. And behold, the angel who talked with me came forward. And another angel came forward to meet him and said to him, Run, say to that young man, Jerusalem shall be inhabited as villages without walls because of the multitude of people and livestock in it. And I will be to her a wall of fire all around, declares the Lord, and I will be the glory in her midst. What's this about? This is about the restoration of Jerusalem. See, it's a vision of a person measuring the width and the length as if preparing to build. And that person is told, un understand, Jerusalem is going to be so inhabited. An ancient city would have always had walls around it. Jerusalem is going to be so prosperous and so full that it's going to burst past the walls. But that's not going to be a problem. Why? Because I will be to her a wall of fire all around, declares the Lord. I will be the glory in her midst. See, God's saying Jerusalem's time of embarrassment Jerusalem's time of defeat, Jerusalem's time of wondering if I'm, if I'm even with them, that is rapidly coming to a close. I will restore their prosperity and I will protect them. 
And then in verses six through nine, there's this, there's this call to those who are still in exile because when the exiles returned, they didn't all return and there were some that were still scattered about. There's this call for them now to return to Jerusalem. And then look what it says in verse 10, remembering that these are discouraged and distressed people. Verse 10, it says, Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, for behold, I come and I will dwell in your midst, declares the Lord. And many nations shall join themselves to the Lord in that day and shall be my people. And I will dwell in your midst and you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. And the Lord will inherit Judah as his portion in the Holy Land and will again choose Jerusalem. Be silent all flesh before the Lord for he has roused himself from his holy dwelling. To this discouraged and defeated people, what does God promise? His presence. What does he say? A time for singing and rejoicing is going to come. And I love what he says. It says that, and many nations shall join themselves to the Lord in that day and shall be my people. It's like the prophet is, is prophesying that God's original promise to Abram, if you know sort of the story of Abram back in Genesis chapter 12, when God calls Abram, he says, then all peoples of the world will be blessed through you. This is the same idea. To say my blessing is going to go beyond Israel. It's going to go beyond Jerusalem, and it's going to encompass all people. And let me tell you why this is relevant to us. Because I've said this before in, in, in this room, that I'm going to go out on a pretty sturdy limb here and guess that most, if not all of us in this room, are not ethnic Jews. That we are part of the many nations who have been drawn into the people of God. And I just want to show you, because I want you to see how some of this stuff fits together. Ephesians chapter 2, if, you're a, if you can turn quick, you can go there, otherwise just listen. But listen to what it says in Ephesians chapter 2, and just kind of with this idea of, of all nations coming together and, and us recognizing, again, we are Gentiles. We're part of that all nations that have been brought into the family of God. It says, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. That is who we are by, by nature as Gentiles outside the people of God. The whole passage is awesome, but just for time, I'm going to skip to verse 19, where it says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the households of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. That you, that's good stuff right there, by the way. That you and I are invited into God's family. We are part of the very, we are part of the many nations. And why does that happen through Christ? That we are invited into the family of God. So this is a picture for Israel. And, and then now the fourth vision. I told you visions four and five are the most important. And I hope you're seeing so far three down, five to go. I hope you're starting to see how God's plans for his people are good. Vision number four. Chapter 3, verse 1. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel, clothed with filthy garments. Now listen, Joshua is the high priest. And for Joshua to be the high priest, that meant during festivals and celebrations, he was the one who would go to the Holy of Holies. He was the one who would represent the people before God. And I just, we don't have time to get into all the little details of this, but suffice to say, if your high priest is clothed in filthy garments, that's a real problem for Israel. But he's clothed in this filth because it's representative of the sins of the people. It's meant to represent the sinfulness of the people. Verse 4. And the angel of the Lord said to those who were standing before him, remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. He doesn't just get a new outfit, he gets a new hat. This is a good day for Joshua. So they put a clean turban on his head. 
and clothed him with garments, and the angel of the Lord was standing by. His filthiness is exchanged for purity, right? God takes his filthy clothes and replaces them with pure white. That, to me, is such a beautiful picture of the gospel, even in the Old Testament, right? That is a, that is a picture of what God does for us, that God in our filth, that he allows us to exchange our filth for Christ's purity. And because of what Jesus did on the cross, he absorbed all of the filth so that we might walk in his purity and holiness, right? This is a picture of what the gospel does for us. And I'm going to tell you, this is what it makes me think about. I have learned in my adult life that it is not wise for me to ever be too far away from one of these. If you don't know what this is, this is a Tide pen. Let me tell you what a Tide pen does. If you get a spot or something on your clothing or something else, you can take the Tide pen, press it in there, and rub it in the, on the stain, and the stain disappears. What a time to be alive. It's amazing, right? And I've just found that I always need to have one of these close because I have a medical condition known as I spill on myself a lot. It's not a condition that can be cured. It can only be managed by Tide pens. And it's very, it creates embarrassing situations often, mostly for my family. They can't take me anywhere. It's ridiculous. And I don't normally carry one with me, but I pretty much always have one in my backpack. But about 10 years ago, I'm in a wedding. And at this wedding, they decided that they were going to serve communion, which is always a risky proposition at a wedding for a variety of reasons. But I'm sitting next to this dad and his son, and the communion elements are passed, and the dad hands the, the cracker and the juice to his son. What could possibly go wrong? And the son promptly spills the juice on his pants, creating this big spot, right? And, I, and, and, and on this particular day... I did not trust myself to get through the wedding and dinner wearing a white shirt, so I had my Tide pen in my coat pocket, and I thought, this is my moment. <laughs> so I say to the dad, I've got a Tide pen. It's a total stranger. And I'm like ready for him to be all excited, but instead he just sort of like, sort of smiles at me, like, okay, whatever. And then he keeps like messing with his kid, you know, trying to clean him up. And like he had a napkin in his pocket and he's wiping it off. And it's just, it's just making the thing worse. And I'm thinking, oh my gosh, this guy is probably cleaner than me. He does not know what a Tide pen is. So finally I whisper to him, I say, hey, listen, you take, take the pen, you rub it on the stain, and it, it'll make the stain go away. And he's like looking at me like, what kind of witch doctor are you? And, but he takes the pen, and sure enough, he rubs it on the stain, and boom, stain goes away. Glory. It was amazing, right? And he's thankful, and you know, whatever else we get on with. Our day. And here's just, I talk about, you talk about, okay, filthy garments being exchanged for purity. My silly wedding story, because this is what we do with our sin. This is what we do with our filth, is we're like, okay, well, let me, like, I got a napkin in my pocket. Let me see if I can cover it up. Or we're like, let me, let me hide it. Like, hey, how are you? Nothing to see here. You know, nothing going on. Or we just, man, I'm just going to deny that it's even there, and maybe it's not going to affect me. We do all these things to try to manage our sin for ourselves, and God's like, what are you doing? And I've got a Tide pen for you. He's like, bring your sin to me. It was all paid for on the cross. Bring it to me. Don't try to manage it. The Christian life is not a life of sin management. The Christian life is one where we're able to take our sin to the cross. God's not just a Tide pen. He's like the Tide fire hose, and it doesn't ever run out. Is that a cheesy illustration? Gosh, yes it is. Oh, it almost hurts. It's so cheesy. But I wonder what you'll think of next time you see one of these. May it be a simple reminder to you that there's grace for you. May it be a simple reminder to you that God sees your stains and doesn't say, wow, those are, I don't know what we're going to do about that. He says, I got gotcha. you. I take away your sin. I take away your sin. Continues on. And the angel of the Lord solemnly assured Joshua 
Thus says the Lord of hosts, if you will walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts, and I will give you the right of access among those who are standing there. I told you last week, faithfulness is a big deal in Zechariah. That the people are called and invited in, and they're called to walk in faithfulness to who God has called them to be. It's just another example of that. And then verse 8, Hear now, O Joshua, the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are a sign. Behold, I will bring my servant the branch. The branch is a symbol for the Messiah. Jeremiah talks about this, and other places do as well. For behold, on the stone that I have set before Joshua, on a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. What does Jesus do for us? He removes our iniquity. And in that day, when iniquity has been removed, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. What the heck does that mean? It's actually a really beautiful picture. That's an ancient symbol of peace and prosperity, to sit under a vine or to sit under a fig tree. And you do that if you're not worried about chaos. You're not worried about violence. You're not worried about oppression. I mean, just, just think about it this way. Like, I'm just, I'm just going to go ahead and assume that, that in your own home or living space, wherever you live, there has to be like a certain amount of order before you think, hey, we should invite people over. Like if things are just totally chaotic and everyone, everything's a mess and people are going crazy, you're not like, you know who would enjoy this? The neighbors, right? <laughs> but like when things are going okay, you might think, hey, who can we invite into our home? Who can we show some hospitality to? Who can we spend some time with? That's the idea here. It's saying that things are going to be at peace. The iniquity is removed. The Messiah has done his work. So hey, come on over. Hang out under my vine for a bit, under my fig tree. It's a beautiful symbol of peace and prosperity. All right, we're halfway there. Here we go, vision number five, chapter four, verse one. And the angel who talked with me came again and woke me like a man who was awakened out of his sleep. I feel like Zechariah is getting a little impatient by now. He's like, he woke me up again. I cannot believe this. What is going on? And then what, what happens, I'll just sort of summarize it for you, is he, he gives him a vision of a lampstand, which is just a big sort of cylindrical piece of furniture. And on that lampstand is a bowl, and the bowl is full of oil. And on that bowl, there are seven lamps. And each of those lamps has seven spouts. So this is like a super lamp sort of situation we got going on here. And in the Old Testament, oil is meant to be a sign of God's presence. So, so this is the picture. And then verse 4. It says, and I said to the angel who talked with me, what are these, my Lord? Then the angel who talked with me answered and said to me, do you not know what these are? I said, no, my Lord. I just like to interpret some irritation in Zechariah here. But then look what he says next. Then he said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. Who was Zerubbabel? This is important. He was the governor who was overseeing the building of the temple, this project that was facing so much opposition, where there were so many challenges, so much hardship. He says, I've got a word for you to give to Zerubbabel. He says this. He says, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. He said, I need you to tell Zerubbabel, hey, listen, I know you've got something big in front of you. How are we going to get this done? It's not going to be because of your strength. It's not going to be because of your power. It's not going to be because of your influence. I need you to know that I am in this, and it is my spirit that is going to get this done. And then look what it says next. It's so good. Who are you, O great mountains? Before Zerubbabel, you shall become a plain, and he shall bring forward the top stone and shouts of grace, grace to it. What's he saying? It, it, it reminds me of what Jesus says in, in the Gospel of Matthew, where he says, if you have faith the size of a, a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, be cast into the sea. And maybe you've wondered, like, what the heck does that mean? It's not meaning we're throwing literal mountains into literal waters. It's a symbol. It's a symbol to say when you have faith, that which is seemingly immovable becomes movable. And I love what it says here. It's, it's, it's that same kind of idea. It's saying, oh, mountain, who are you? Mountain of opposition, mountain of discouragement, mountain of defeat. Who are you with Zerubbabel filled with my spirit? I hate to tell you, you don't have a chance. You're going to become a plane. We're building this temple. And you know what's going to happen? Zerubbabel's going to be there to put the final stone in. And the people are going to go wild. That's what it says. I told you last week. 
I said how a lot of these prophets that are writing in this time, I think they're, they're so inspiring because God used them to catalyze change in Israel in some powerful ways. And I said that catalyze, people that, that really bring about great change, that they're people of vision who can see God's desired future and work toward it, that they're people of character, and that they're people of spiritual power that they live deep with God and that God is working through them and they can see the world through God's eyes, right? And I don't know your situation, but I, and I don't know what obstacles you're facing. And I always wanna be careful about saying a promise to a specific person necessarily applies to one of us today. But I think there's a principle here that maybe for some of us that, do, that the encouragement you need is that you need to know that if, in the face of the opposition that you are facing, that if God is in what you're doing, that the, the, the victory is not going to come by your own strength. It's not going to come by your own power, that it's going to come by God's spirit working in you and through you to accomplish what God wants to accomplish. That that's how the job gets done. And here's what we need to understand, that this, this, this idea of God, it's by God's spirit that things are going to happen. This is not a passive process, right? The Zerubbabel doesn't hear, oh, it's by the spirit of God that this is going to happen. Cool. I guess I got nothing to do. What's on Netflix, right? That it's an active process, right? But the best way I can, I can think to explain it is this, is that it's it's Zerubbabel having a shift in perspective to say, well, I got to make everything happen and I hope that God is with me. And instead, he's saying, God, how are you working in this situation? And how can I be a part of what you're doing? How can I be part of what you're doing? And this just gets me thinking, thinking real quick, and then we're going to move on. I think about my own prayer life, which probably like you has ebbed and flowed a lot over the years. And I just think in my life now, I just try to have the discipline when I, when I get, into, get into work in the morning is just have some time of quiet and prayer and scripture reading and all of that stuff. And what I'm finding is right now in my life, for me, the most transformative prayer times I'm having is times when I'm not really saying much. Like I pray for stuff all the time, don't get me wrong. But for me, some of the most transformative times of prayer is just me just trying to take the time to say, God, help me to see things through your eyes today. Because right? I don't know about you, like, I don't have to wake up in the morning and say, okay, Brian, don't you forget, make sure you be selfish today. <laughs> like, I do that really naturally. I don't, mean to, I don't mean to brag, but like, that just comes very easily to me, right? I don't need to practice that. Like, that sort of stuff. Make sure that you're looking out for the, you know, yourself and not other people. Like, I do that real good on my own. But if I'm going to be the sort of person who's looking at the world through God's eyes, I need God's help with that right? If I'm going to be a non-anxious presence in tense situations, if I'm able to have difficult conversations with, with grace and to be of help to people, I, I can't do that on my own. I'll be too clouded by my selfishness and my biases and things like that. I need God's help with that. I wonder if for some of us, faced with the obstacles we're facing or maybe just faced with the challenges of life, part of what we need is just time before God where we can be still, we can reflect on who he is and say, God, in whatever I have today, Help me to see things through your eyes because it's not by might and it's not by power, but it's by your spirit that you're going to accomplish the things you want to accomplish in my life. It's been transformative for me. I wonder if that might be helpful for someone today. Five down, three to go. Here we go. Chapter five. The rest of the chapter four, by the way, is just explaining some of the, the imagery there. Chapter five. Again, I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, a flying scroll. Because why not? And he said to me, "This is these are dreams. The rules of reality don't apply." All right. And he said to me, "What do you see?" I answered, "I see a flying scroll. Its length is twenty cubits. That's about thirty feet, and its width ten cubits, fifteen feet." Then he said to me, "This is the curse that goes out over the face of the whole land." For everyone who steals shall be cleaned out according to what is on one side. Everyone who swears falsely shall be cleaned out according to what is on the other side. So what's the vision here? There is a gigantic scroll flying all over the place. Look out! And it's saying that it's pronouncing judgment over particular kinds of people. One, those who would steal, and the other, those who would swear falsely. And pretty much every commentator I read this week says that those are meant to be sort of sins that represent broader categories of sin. To say that, that, to say that those who would steal represent those who would wrong or demean their neighbor. And that those who would swear falsely are those who would compromise or demean the holiness of God. And, and both of these correspond with 
commandments in the Ten Commandments, right? So these are meant to be a broader picture. It's as if, as if, as if the vision is meant to communicate, listen, there were decades of this sort of thing in Israel's history where we were demeaning and devaluing one another and we were demeaning and devaluing the holiness of God. That got us into a big mess. We're not doing that again. And here's what we need to understand today is that when we demean other image bearers of God, other human beings, and when we demean the holiness of our God, it never ends well. It never ends well. And I believe that is when we do those things, that can be a symptom of the idolatry in our hearts, right? That when we are willing to demean other people in the name of something else, that just shows that it has become an idol to us. And we live in a world today where we are demeaning one another. We're not disagreeing. Disagreeing is fine. But we are demeaning one another in unspeakably awful ways. And we're often doing it even as Christ followers. And I have to tell you, it does not matter how right your cause is or my cause is. If we demean other people in defense of it, we're wrong. If we demean other people in defense of it, we're wrong. There is an epidemic in society today, but in the church today, of being willing to demean those who disagree with us, being willing to demean those who are different than us, being willing to demean those who look different than us, and it is absolutely unacceptable. And make no mistake about it, the world is watching. We can disagree we can be respectful and die. Man, you, you know me at all. You know I'm passionate about all sorts of stuff. But we cannot be men and women who demean others for the sake of whatever our cause is. We cannot do that. And we cannot be people, because when we demean others, we're demeaning the holiness of God because we're demeaning what he has created. I just wonder, do we need to look at our lives? Do we need to look at the words that come out of our mouths? Do we need to look at our social media feeds and not just ask, am I advocating for things I believe in, but am I demeaning those who are different than me? Because those are very different, right? Those are very, very different. And demeaning others, let's just be, be honest here, demeaning others is so much easier now that so much of our communication is online because I can say awful things about you or people like you because I don't have to look you in the eye while I say it right? We demean other people. This can't happen. It cannot happen. It shouldn't happen in society. It cannot happen in the church of Jesus Christ where we're called to love our enemies. So this is what the, the scroll is going all throughout Israel and is saying, okay, listen, thieves and those who would dishonor the Lord, we can't have that. If, if the third vision was about purifying, the sixth, or sorry, the third vision was about building up. The sixth vision is about purifying. And in verse four, it talks about how this idea is going to apply to those who live in houses of timber and stones. Basically just saying, think about like three little pigs. You have the house made of sticks and the house made of bricks. Like one is much fancier than the other. It's saying you can hide from a lot of things if you're rich. You cannot hide from God. <laughs> that what God is doing to purify Israel is going to be for rich and poor alike. Seven. This is the weirdest one, by the way. Verse five. Then the angel who talked with me came forward and said to me, lift your eyes and see what, is, see what this is that is going out. And I said, what is it? And he said, this is a basket that is going out. And he said, this is their iniquity in all the land. And behold, the leaden cover was lifted and there was a woman sitting in a basket. Sure. Verse eight. And he said, this is wickedness. And he thrust her back into the basket and thrust down the leaden weight on its opening. So there's a basket. And there's a woman in it. And this woman is meant to personify wickedness. And there's a big heavy cover over her. That's where we're starting. You know what this vision really needs? A couple of women with stork wings. Let's just see what we find. Verse 9. Then I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, two women coming forward. The wind was in their wings. They had wings like the wings of a stork. How about it? And they lifted up the basket between earth and heaven. Then I said to the angel who talked with me, where are they taking the basket? He said to me, to the land of Shinar, to build a house for it. If Shinar is in Babylon. And when this is prepared, they will set the basket down there on its base. Okay. Verse 
The sixth vision is about individual sin. Seven is about systemic sin in the land. To say that this systemic sin in Israel's culture needs to be taken away and brought back to Babylon. The wickedness that they've picked up in Babylon, the wickedness in their own heart, I am, my judgment on that is I am removing it from Jerusalem. And listen, I said, this is a vision for all of, this is meant to personify the, the, the wickedness of the culture at large, but I just want to make this very personal for a second because I think this is actually a really beautiful picture. This idea of, of wickedness is in the basket and the basket gets removed. Because listen, I, I, I've said throughout the message that God's plans for his people are good. But the fact of the matter is, if you and I, if we're going to be people who engage with what God is doing in the world, who are participating in his story, who are fully maximizing who God has created us to be, let's just be honest, every single person in this room, myself included, we got some stuff we got to put in the basket, right? We got, we got some stuff we're carrying with us. We got some sin in our hearts. We got some wickedness in our hearts that if we're going to fully engage with God, we got to put it in the basket so that God can take it away because it's holding us back because it's holding us back. But here's the thing. Like, that all sounds well and good. Like, I don't know, y'all didn't react much, but I think that preaches pretty well. <laughs> but if it was that easy, don't you think we all would have done it by now? If it was just like, oh, my sin, my addiction, my issues, I just got to put it in the basket, take it away, done, right? Oh, cool. If it was that, like, wouldn't, come on. So, some of us, we, we've been struggling with the same stuff for years, so some of us, we, we, we struggle every day with stuff and we beat ourselves up and say, man, why am I not over this by now? But, but, but listen, when the church is healthy, this is where the church comes in. Because it's in the church where we don't need to know everybody, but where we, we find our people. And when we find our people, we're able to have space where we can be vulnerable and say to one another, hey, listen, I got some stuff that needs to go in the basket. But I'm having a hard time getting it there. And what we can experience is acceptance, radical acceptance, which is different than approval. We experience radical acceptance from people who hear about what we need to put in the basket, and they don't judge us and condemn us for us, but they say, you're welcomed in. There's room for you under the grace of God. And we can receive prayer, and we can receive encouragement, and we can have people that walk with us to help us put our stuff in the basket, and then we can walk back together. And then when we have those moments where we have to say to one another, you know, remember that stuff we put in the basket last week? Yeah, it's right here. I went back and got it. We can have people that say, there is grace for you still. There is grace for you still. We can pray for one another. We can encourage one another. We can, we can play the long game with each other to do that work of getting our wickedness, getting our sin, getting our junk, putting it in the basket so that in time, the Holy Spirit of God working through one another, working in our lives, he takes it away. That's how the church is supposed to work. And by the way, this fall, we're doing a series on the parables of Jesus starting in middle of August. I can't wait. We're just going to spend the whole fall talking about this idea of what does it look like to live in that sort of a way? What does it look to li like to live in the kingdom, to, to, to live this sort of life with one another? It's going to be an incredible fall here at Bridgeway. I hope you're a part of it. What needs to go in the basket? I wonder. What needs, and who can help you get the stuff that needs to get there? We're running out of time. We're going to go quick through verse eight and, or vision eight and then look at the last one. So the eighth vision is similar to the fourth vision, and I'll just summarize it for you. There's a vision of four chariots, which chariots were basically ancient tanks. And these chariots get sent out to the north and to the south, to Babylon and to Egypt. And it says at the very end of the section, chapter 6, verse 8, Then he cried to me, those who go towards the north country have set my spirit at rest in the north country. What's the picture? Real quick. It's just the picture of God, these chariots going out and God experiencing total victory. So now there's peace in Jerusalem, and there's peace in the land, right? In vision one, there was peace in the land, but not in Jerusalem. Now it's going out from peace. It's a promise that God's victory is assured. So, so there's our eight visions. Zechariah has this crazy night of sleep. He surely the next day called his doctor to have his, have his sleep medication adjusted. But then there's this final word of prophecy. And the word of the Lord came to me, 
Take from the exiles, Helda, Tobijah, and Jediah, who have arrived from Babylon. Go the same day to the house of Josiah, the son of Zephaniah. Take from them silver and gold and make a crown and set it on the head of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. He says, I want you to make a crown for Joshua, but we're going to see very quickly that what this is prophesying is not about Joshua at all. And say to him, thus says the Lord of hosts, behold, the man whose name is the branch, there's our word again, for he shall be a branch from this place, and he shall build the temple to the Lord. It, sh- it is he who shall build the temple of the Lord and shall bear royal honor and shall sit and rule on his throne. And there shall be a priest on this throne and the council of peace shall be between them both. Scholars think that the, this idea of the council of peace between them both actually means that they're one person, a king and a priest. Who is our king and our priest? Jesus church. You don't know the answer. Just say Jesus. And the crown shall be in the temple of the Lord as a reminder to all those people whose names I'm not going to pronounce again. And those who are far off shall come and help to build the temple of the Lord. And you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me. And this shall come to pass if you will diligently obey the voice of the Lord your God. This section ends with a messianic prophecy. See, Zechariah spoke of a temple, but he prophesied of a Messiah. He spoke of a building, and an important building, but he prophesied about something so much more significant. And we know from history that indeed the building, the temple was built, and indeed the Messiah came, and he was a king, and he was a priest. So now I I started this off by talking about this idea of you being a part of a great story, And I talked about this idea that God's plans for his people are good. How can we now as 21st century Christ followers know that that is true? We can know that is true because that Messiah came. We can know that is true because that Messiah showed us this thing called the kingdom of God. We can know that is true because that Messiah made a way for us Gentiles to be a part of God's kingdom. We can know that that is true because he, instead of condemning us for our filthiness, he lived in perfect purity, took his filthiness upon himself so that we might have his purity. He went to the cross and he died and in three days he rose again to know that our filthiness is not going to have the final word and to make sure we know that we are part of a great story. A story of a God who has everlasting mercy for us. A story of a God who has unending forgiveness for us. A story of a God who is our prophet, who is our priest, who welcomes us in, and who has great plans for us, his people. So so here's the bottom line, and then I'm done. Because this is true. Because this is true. I don't know your situation. I don't know what you're going through. But because you're part of a great story, because God sees you and God knows you, you have an invitation from your God in heaven to play your part well. And it's not dependent on your strength. It's dependent on your spirit that is with, his spirit who is with you. So where do you need restoration in your life. Maybe part of that is you need to accept God's gracious invitation to you to remember that he is with you and by his strength, he will give you the power to play your part well in this grand, incredible story he is writing. Amen?